Well, it really is a joy to be back with you and excited. I'm excited. Uh, I hope you are too to be in the Word of God this morning. We are pressing further along into the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. Uh, we are working our way through this Gospel that Calvin said you would recall. Uh, gives us the soul of Jesus. The other Gospels give us His hands and feet, but the Gospel of John gives us the very soul of Jesus. And when I think about the soul of Jesus, I think about my own soul receiving the life of Christ into my very being, and I trust that you uh, rejoice in that as well. And if there's one thing that marks the Christian, it is that we are believers, right? We're called that, believers. Um, we are a household of the faith. We're a community of the faith. We believe. Uh, when I think of this church, I think of precious saints who believe. We are not marked by unbelief. In every church there are, as Jesus said, there are wheat and tares. Within every congregation there are those who are saved and there are those who are not. Um, but overall we are a people of belief. And why I mention all of that is because as we transition and press on further into John chapter 12, the second half of it, we begin to consider unbelief and where unbelief comes from. And I think about going through the Beatitudes with you when we jumped out of John and we spent however many weeks we did in the Beatitudes and you know the blessed are, happy are, and when you begin to think about unbelief, it's not very happy, uh, it actually makes you quite sad when you think of those that have gone before you who have uh, not received Christ, been hostile to Christ. It's not the nicest of topics, but what I can assure you and what's quite remarkable from our passage is that our belief doesn't come in a vacuum and unbelief has some factors to play in. And so I'm looking forward to being with you in this passage. But as we press on in further into John 12, I want to show you something which I pointed out to you the last time we were together. I trust it helps us not lose the forest for the trees, but keep the big picture in mind. I want to give that to you by way of reminder, since it has been some time since we've been in John, due to the Beatitudes, as I said, and then some great messages from Simon and Toby and Benji. Here, where we're up to in our in, in the gospel right now is we're inside that final week of Jesus' earthly life. He'll very soon be crucified. And in the lead up to the cross, John, the apostle who obviously wrote this gospel, has been working very hard to show us certain things and certain signs along the way for us, the reader, to piece things together. And you'll recall that John doesn't speak of miracles per se, but he calls them signs. The other Gospels call them miracles. John doesn't do that. He calls them signs because he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show what these miraculous signs deeper signify. Signs always point to something else outside of themselves, what they point to. And so the seventh and grandest of all the signs in John we've considered in John 11 is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And this signified, as all signs do, by proving to us that Jesus is who He says He is. He is who His Father says He is. That is, He is the Son of God and that He alone possesses power 
as God to raise us to spiritual life. We were once spiritually dead. He raised us to spiritual life. And he has, and because of that, we greatly rejoice. And so I mentioned before about how we're a community of belief and that we're here as believers. Are you thankful that the Lord Jesus raised you to newness of life and that you believe? You better be. God wouldn't be very happy with us if you and I have been raised to newness of life, that we possess belief that didn't come from ourselves but came from him, and we weren't very glad in Jesus. And so we're glad in that. But there's something I want you to see again, and don't miss it. Lazarus's two sisters, Mary and Martha, they both declare here, uh, prior to our portion, they both declared that they said, Jesus, I believe that you are the Son of God. That, that's, the, that's the profession of you and I. Lord, I believe that you are the Son of God. That's the purpose of the Gospel of John, you recall. Those sisters professed the purpose of the gospel of John. It was written so that one might believe and profess and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Then as Jesus enters Jerusalem, we saw that John wanted us to see that Jesus was hailed. You remember as Jesus was entering in Jerusalem, they hailed him as not the Son of God, but the Son of David, the Son of David. And now then when Jesus gets closer to the cross and closer to leaving the public eye altogether, which the remainder of John 12 is the final moments of Christ in any public eye whatsoever, and you transition into John 13, and the rest of the gospel is Christ is away from the public eye and He's with the disciples in the upper room discourse and the like, and then He's crucified. But when He's here in these last moments, He says to the people present that he is not the son of God, which he is, not the son of David, which he is, but he says to them that he is the son of man. And so the son of God, the son of David, and the son of man. John wants us to see that. John doesn't want us to miss that. John has carefully laid that out for us. Why? So there is glory of Jesus for us in that He is the Son of God, the Son of David, and the Son of Man. And so, again, if you want to put a very practical feel on what it means to behold the glory of Christ, which 2 Corinthians 3.18 tells us is a transforming glory, that that's how we actually grow in life, that God has ordained for us, not to simply be stagnant and sleepy Christians, but students of the Word of God, so as to behold the glory of God in the person of Christ, the way in which you do that is you... Well, part of it anyway is you study what it means for Jesus in your life and the life of the church to be the Son of God, to be the Son of David and to be the Son of Man. If, I promise you, if, if you unfold and study each of those, you'll begin to grow in your affections for God in the person of Christ and that's a good thing. That's a good thing. There's a big picture, not only in the Gospel of John but also in John chapter 12 and even our passage as a whole. And it's this, the Son sent to bring glory to the Father. And the Father actually arranges everything for the Son to do that. In other words, God glorifies Himself as His own chief end. You and I get to be a part 
of God glorifying Himself. You and I get to be a part of, uh, be the love gift between the Father and the Son, and so rich is the Christian life. I, I, I preached a conference in Sydney next to Martin Isles, and as he was getting ready to preach, I turned to him, just so overwhelmed by the Christian blessing, that I turned to him and I just said, ain't the Christian life grand? And he turned to me and said, no truer words have ever been spoken. And I thought to myself, well, it's true. The Christian life is grand. You and I have Christ. We have the Lord Jesus as our good shepherd. We have the Lord Jesus living inside of us. We are a people most, most blessed indeed. And we receive all of that because God has as his chief end to glorify himself. The, the Westminster Shorter Catechism asks that very well-known question, its very first question, what is the chief end of man? We know the answer to that, to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Well, God has His own chief end, and God's chief end is to glorify Himself. And John's Gospel, John chapter 12, every portion of John's Gospel really shows us that God glorifies Himself by sending His Son to die a death on a cross the cross and the death and the Christ judges the world, defeats Satan, and then draws all God's people to himself, having actually atoned for their sins. And then re remarkably, as we lay hold of the joy that I'm trying to display to you and, and explain to you, is that then causes those same people to begin to shine as lights in the world with joy. And... That's really the premier and express way God's glory is displayed as we lay hold of that and then we live that out. But it's not the only way. It's not the only way because in our passage today, verses 37 to 43, is the theme of unbelief in glory. We've just spoken about belief in glory. Well, now there's unbelief and glory. And as I said, we stepped out of the Beatitudes and that was all about happiness. Here we now have to go where the text goes, such as my responsibility, and it's kind of about sadness. But the end of it all is not sadness. As we'll see, it is ultimately to cause gladness in our heart. And so unbelief and glory... The second part of John chapter 12 has been rightly called a theology of unbelief. And so I want us to read it together and then, and then pray. The passage I, I want to draw our hearts and minds' attentions to for this Lord's Day is, as I said, verses 37 to 43. But I want us to read through to verse 50 because that's where we'll be to round out John 12. And so may God bless the reading of His Word Beginning in verse 37. But though he, that's Jesus, had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. Remarkably, verse 38 says, This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, 
so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved. The approval of men rather than the approval of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are here. We pray for those that aren't here. If they're sick, would you heal them? If they're apathetic towards Christ and your church, would you do a work in their heart? And we pray for those of us that are here Lord, and anyone who hears, would you be pleased with our time in your word as an act of worship? We believe in the Holy Spirit of God. We thank you that we have been shed abroad by that same spirit, your spirit, the love of you into our heart. And Father, we come realizing that we're always dealing with your word, and so we want to be somber and serious and and yet joyful in Christ. And so help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I really just have two headings for you in this portion, verse 37 to 43. I just want to tell you that the first one, the heading of it is called the shocking report. Not shocking because it's uh, something vile, shocking because it's truly astonishing. The shocking report in verses 37 to 40, and that's where we'll spend the bulk of our time because our second heading, which we'll get to later, really just affirms, confirms, undergirds, illustrates, validates, and explains everything we'll consider in our opening point. But the shocking report, if you're taking notes, the shocking report, verse 37, but though he had performed so many signs before them, Yet still, they were not believing in Him. All the way back in the opening chapter of this gospel, we read in John chapter 1 verse 11 that Jesus came to His own and His own did not receive Him. To to receive Jesus is to believe in Him. And to receive Jesus is to lay hold of Him by faith and by faith alone apart from any works. That is, the Jews were sent as, they were sent a Messiah, they were sent a Jewish Messiah, sent to be the Savior for the Jewish people, and all the Jewish people overall did not receive Him, they did not believe Him. Then all throughout Jesus' public ministry, we've seen throughout this gospel, that same Jewish people refused continually to receive Him. And if you know the Gospel of John well, you'll know that John chapter 13 begins what is affectionately and appropriately referred to as the upper room discourse, where Jesus, as I said, is gone for good from the public eye, and He's just with His disciples wholesale, 
And so, before John concludes the public involvement in any way, including any public invitation to salvation from Jesus, it's not surprising at all, considering that unbelief has been apparent all through this gospel so far, that it ends now with the most detailed, deep dive into unbelief. No surprise. As the curtain fully closes now on Jesus' public ministry, including free and public offers of the gospel, we are given words by John the Apostle, and we're given prophecy that he, John, draws out from the Old Testament, namely the book of Isaiah, concerning unbelief. Unbelief, get this, being a key, intrinsic part of the plan and will of God. That's sad to say. That's heartbreaking to say. But unbelief is in the prophecy, the plan, and the purposes of God. Look again at verse 37. It's just so shocking. Though he had performed so many signs before them, they were not believing in him. You know, you read that and you think Jesus is there with the Jews of his day. And you read that and you immediately think of not only the Jews of his day, but Israel before him. It sounds a lot like the people of Israel in the past. Listen carefully as I read Deuteronomy 29 verses 3 and 4 which is speaking of the Jews back in the day. You have seen all that Yahweh did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and all his servants and to all his land. The great trials which your eyes have seen, those great signs that you have seen and the wonders you have seen. Yet to this day, Yahweh has not given you a heart to know nor eyes to see nor ears to hear. That's remarkable. You've seen, but God hasn't given you eyes to see. We see from that and from our passage that God has in His plan, astonishingly, shockingly, not only the granting of a heart of belief, belief, but He's also sovereign in the ultimate sense, as the ultimate cause over hearts that do not believe. It's hard to swallow, I know. But it's either that God is altogether sovereign in salvation, absolute sovereignty of God in salvation, or, he, or He's not, He's only partial. And yet, we must also maintain that people are revealed to us in the Bible as those who are held 100% accountable for their own sin and are 100% responsible to believe. R.C. Sproul used to say that the question that he was most often asked, and I got this from one of my kids 
last week is, what about the poor and innocent people in Africa who have never heard the gospel? I'm sure you get asked that question by unbelievers or your children, it's a, it's a good question. And in true RC fashion, he hones in on that word and he hones in on the overall concept and thrust when someone asks that question behind that little word, innocent. Because that's what's really asked about that question. What, what about those people in Africa? What about those people in faraway places? Those innocent people who have never heard the gospel. R.C. said he used to just give the same answer and over and over and over. It's classic sprawl. I miss that guy. The innocent person, he said, in Africa doesn't need to hear the gospel. He said, don't worry another minute for that innocent little person in Africa who's never heard the gospel. He says, when that innocent person dies, they go straight to heaven. Asi's being very cheeky there. He's saying that you don't need to worry about that innocent person because there's no such thing as an innocent person. No such thing. Anywhere in the world, wherever, there's no such thing as an innocent person. Asi actually said that he prefers to ask the question another way. What happens to the guilty person in Africa who has never heard the gospel? You see, he doesn't worry about the innocent because God makes it very clear that there are no innocent people anywhere. All have sinned, all are guilty in God's sight. Romans chapter 1 tells us that God's creation alone and the conscience leave all people wherever they are without excuse as to the existence of God. And the reality of God as judge and creator. And the whole world, wherever a person may be found, is guilty in the sight of God, no matter in a bustling city or the most remote island, because the darkness of sin, along with the blindness that the devil brings, who's spoken of in Scripture, obviously, as the God of this world, a God of death, devilish destruction and darkness. You see, it's into that darkness is sent Jesus, the light of the world. The light of the world. Look up at verse 36. Jesus said there, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of light, that you may Live as those who shine as lights in the world. And while you have the light, believe in the light. Don't let the light pass you by. The light was first sent to Israel. And what John is showing us here in our passage is that God's prophecy predicts, reveals Israel's unbelief. Look at verse 38 again. Look there. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet. Unbelief prophesied and fulfilled. Isaiah said, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? And so shockingly, the reason for the unbelief of the Jews here is because of God's plan according to God's prophecy. 
they would not and they could not believe. Yet our passage and John himself gives to us genuine causes for the unbelief. One is from God that we just read and we'll look at further. And the other is from themselves. And when we talk about causes, we talk about what is known as causality. Causality. Causality is the idea of differing levels and degrees to things playing out. Causes. And there really is no simpler illustration to causality than Acts chapter 2, verse 23. And so I want you to very quickly turn with me there to Acts chapter 2. It's important to grasp this. Acts chapter 2, very familiar verse, verse 23. Read it with me. This man, talking of Jesus... Delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. And so you have three levels of causality there. You have God being the ultimate cause of Jesus' death. Jesus died on the cross the way Jesus died on the cross because God was the ultimate cause of that happening. But get this, you would never assign to God the guilt of the sin of criminalizing and crucifying the innocent Lord Jesus, would you? You just wouldn't do that. That guilt assigned is assigned to the secondary cause or the next cause. It's the you in that phrase, you nailed to a cross. Who's the you? That's the Jews. But then you've got to ask yourself, did, did the Jews nail Jesus to the cross? They couldn't. They had no authority to do that, to crucify anyone. What'd they have to do? Well, they had to go to the next level of causality. That's in that phrase, by the hands of godless men and put him to death. The Romans. So you've got three levels of causality. The ultimate cause to it all is God. The Jews handed over Jesus to be killed... But get this, God holds them guilty for it. They are the chargeable cause of guilt, not God. Even though in the ultimate sense and cause, it was God who handed Jesus over. You see, God, while the ultimate cause for all things, is never assigned or charged as the guilty party. I'll tell you for why. Because people always make their own sinful choices uncoerced and from the freedom of their own inclination. 
what you and I are inclined to do. We, we make our decisions uncoerced and we make them from the inclination of our own freedom there. And so, while the prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 1, you can turn back with me to John 12. In John 12, in, in verse 38, that prophecy of Isaiah 53 verse 1... That's where they find their fulfillment and that's where God is the ultimate cause of the Jews' unbelief. And even while that's true, they are guilty and held guilty of the sin of rejecting Jesus because they chose to reject Jesus. Jesus who was sent to them, who was sent for them, And who gave them the message of salvation that they freely rejected. And then they're held accountable for it. They're held accountable for it. And so God the Father, through the pen of the Apostle John here, is calling out so loud and so clear that very few actually listened to the prophet of God, Isaiah's words, and very few received the revelation of truth. And the reason for that, look at verse 39. For this reason they could not believe, because Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and He has hardened their hearts, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. And we see here, as one pastor theologian put it so well, quote, we see that saving faith is not something that rests in the final analysis simply on intellectual recognition or intellectual submission to facts. End quote. Salvation doesn't have as its resting point solely the ability just to intellectually understand something and that's it. Otherwise, each and every one of us could say, I'm a lot smarter than my next door neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus. That's not how salvation works. I'm dumber than my next door neighbor who doesn't believe in Jesus. But God, by His grace, opened my eyes and your eyes to see wonderful things about Christ. Saving faith and salvation as a whole, in its final analysis, rests solely upon the grace of God poured out upon the ungodly. Remember that from Romans 5. Christ died for the ungodly. You and I didn't clean ourselves up a little bit enough and then Christ died for us. No, no, Christ died for us while we were completely ungodly, such as the scandal of God's grace and justification by faith. He restored and redeemed us by Christ's finished work and that glorious resurrection. And so when you hear all of this, when you read this, it's a shocking report, really. Shocking in that it's absolutely astonishing. It's quite amazing that unbelief is inside the plan and purpose and prophecy of God. And yet, at the exact same time, personal responsibility is not negated. In fact... If you read verse 37 again with new eyes, you'll see it strongly implied, that personal responsibility. 
But though he had performed so many signs before him, yet they were not believing in him. There's a responsibility implied there. They, even though they had witnessed enough to believe, they willingly chose not to. Therefore, because they willingly chose not to believe, they are responsible for that rejection and they receive judgment from God. And yet, incredibly, the ultimate cause of Israel's unbelief and all unbelief is the plan and prophecy and purpose of God. We see that this prophecy was actually, this, this unbelief was predicted by God Himself in and through the prophet Isaiah, whom John quotes twice from two different places. And so let's take a look at that now. In verse 38, John quotes from Isaiah 53, verse 1, as I said. And it's actually given as the reason for Israel's unbelief. And then in verse 40, another reason for Israel's unbelief is given, and that is a quote from Isaiah 6.10. And so two reasons for their unbelief is given. And here is what's all in here. And here is why it's here. Isaiah 53 is obviously talking about that suffering servant of Yahweh, the Lord Jesus. Verse 1 of Isaiah 53 is quoted there in verse 38 for us. And you'll notice it's in the form of two questions. Who has believed? Which I want you to know is to say no one has believed. Who, who's believed? No one. I remember moving to America. We hadn't been there long. How's the weather? Um, uh, it's, um, uh, they didn't know how to answer. Sometimes we ask questions like that. Who, who's believed? No one. To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Second question, that's to say, to whom did God work signs amongst? That's what that means. To whom did God work signs amongst? Israel saw the signs, they didn't believe. You see now how verse 37 fits in. They had seen signs that they didn't believe. But here's the interesting thing about Isaiah 53 verse 1. Isaiah 53 verse 1 is not isolated from its context and the very next verses in Isaiah 53 say this, He, that's the suffering servant, Jesus, had no form or majesty that we, that we should look upon Him. No beauty that we should desire Him. He was despised and rejected by men. And so you begin to see now what John's doing. He's saying that the people of Israel were looking for a Messiah, a Savior, who was strong and mighty and able to give them all that they wanted. But they were sent a Savior who appeared to be weak and pitiful. Who you remember rode in on a tiny little donkey with his knees up in the air, not on a valiant horse, but pathetic little donkey to fulfill prophecy. This is, this is a Messiah who's not strong and mighty and not able to give them what they wanted. And here we begin to see all this unravel for us. 
They were unable to see the truth of the true Messiah, that he was lowly and meek and a suffering Savior who was not primarily focused on giving sinners what they want, but who was sent by the Father to give sinners what they need. And then in verse 40, John quotes Isaiah, he quotes not Isaiah 53, but now Isaiah 6.10. Verse 40, he's blinded their eyes and he's hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Isaiah 6, we know Isaiah 6. We know how Isaiah 6 begins, that amazing portion, beginning in verse 1, which says, In the year of King Isaiah's death, I, Isaiah, saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of His robe, you remember, filling the temple. Seraphim, he said, were standing above Him, each having six wings with Two each covered his face, and with two each covered his feet, and with two each flew. And one called out to another and said of the the Lord there, Holy, holy, holy is Yahweh. The whole earth is full of His glory. And then keep that in your mind, and amazingly, and don't miss this, look at verse 41 of our passage in John 12. It says there, 41, these things Isaiah said, everything I just read to you and the verses in our passage, because he saw his glory, he saw Jesus' glory. I remember hearing, I remember just being saved and seeing that for the first time and thinking, wow, that's, that's clearly saying that Jesus is God, that Jesus is Yahweh, because He saw Jesus' glory and spoke of Jesus. That's what John says in verse 41. After being struck by that glory in Isaiah 6, do you remember what the prophet Isaiah then said after being struck by Jesus as Yahweh and the glory and the holy scene there? Do you remember what he said? He said, woe to me, for I am undone. You remember? Because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Jesus. My eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. You remember what he said after that? He said, here I am. Someone's got to go. I'll go. Here I am. Send me. But then do you remember this? God said, I'll send you. I'll send you to preach. And what did God say to Isaiah as he sent him to preach? He said, beginning in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, he said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not understand. Keep on looking, but do not gain knowledge. Make the hearts of this people, Israel, insensitive, make their ears dull, make their eyes blind, so that they will not see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. That's what happened. 
You see, God in his sovereign reign and in his sovereign plan was blinding the eyes and hardening the hearts of the people of Israel into very deep unbelief. And John wants us to see that by showing us that the Savior Jesus was sent to them as a lowly suffering servant and they rejected that. And he was also sent as the true thrice holy God abounding in glory and they were not interested in the glory of God whatsoever and so they rejected that too. A double portion of love and mercy incarnate. And they rejected it. Because number one, they wanted a saviour who was unlike the saviour that God gave them and the Bible speaks of. They wanted earthly comfort and earthly power. And number two, because they ran from holiness and glory. And God, in His master plan, knew that was going to be the case. Because He planned that to be the case. And so He sent the Savior just the way that He was, so that in seeing they will not see, and in hearing they will not hear. You see, the punishment and judgment for Israel's persistent rejection of divine truth was blindness and a hardening. And this is what theologians rightly call judicial blindness and judicial hardening. They did not want to hear about a suffering Savior and a holy glory. They wanted a useful and expedient Savior. They did not want what God had provided. And the consequences were dire. So, Israel's unbelief, Israel's rejection of the Messiah was part of God's plan, and it was judgment upon them. But, but, here is where the sad news of unbelief in the people of Israel results in good news for the world. And that's what's remarkable about this passage. That's what's shocking about it. This is what ought to make us glad. Not only was the unbelief of Israel and their rejection of the Savior Jesus in the plan of God, so too in the plan of God was the bringing about of God, God's grace and love to the world by and through the rejection of Israel. What do I mean? Well, in Romans chapter 11... When the Apostle Paul is writing about his own people, Israel, he writes, beginning in verse 8, God gave them a spirit of stupor, quoting from the Old Testament, eyes that would not see, ears that would not hear, down to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and retribution for them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. Paul writes now, he says, so I ask... Did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, get this, through their sin, salvation has come to the Gentiles. That's incredible. Paul wrote, their sin means riches for the world. Wow. 
You see, the people of Israel who had the Messiah, who'd come to them, they received him not, they fully rejected him. He came as a suffering man who was not glorious in their eyes. He came as one shining forth the glory of God and they ran from that. Such was their love for their sin. They didn't care for God's glory. They spurned it. But their spurning of Christ and their sin of rejecting Christ actually meant that God would pour out the riches of His mercy and grace and love upon the rest of the nations in the world. Which includes you and includes me. God blessed the nations. God ignited world missions. Spread the gospel to faraway islands like Australia and New Zealand and all the islands. From He did so from the predetermined and prophesied rejection of the Jews. And here's one thing I want to say. When God describes in Romans 11 that I read from just before, that transgression, that sin of Israel being the cause of the salvation message and salvation spreading beyond Israel out to the rest of the world, he, God speaks of the hardening of Israel as being only temporary. That, that in a day to come, the nation of Israel will actually come to see whom they have pierced and they will mourn and God by His grace will pour out a spirit of supplication and salvation upon them and that will be a very glorious day. But get this, the word used in Romans chapter 11 to describe their sin, their transgression of rejecting Jesus is a word that literally means a stumbling step, a false step, a faulty step. They sinned. Their rejection was serious and worthy of judgment. And many, many of them fell in that judgment. But that stumbling step, that faulty step was only temporary in the bigger picture. Because the grace of our God promises restoration and healing and forgiveness for every stumbling, faulty step. I just read a portion this morning in Isaiah 30 and it just talks about how God longs to be gracious to them and that God will heal them and will restore them. And so I want to say to you that if you are here and are outside of the grace of God, having rejected Christ and stumbled and fell and lived a life of sin, Christ this day is the grace of God to you. He is God for you. His riches are no match for the richness of your own sin. Your sin is great, but His mercy is more. He is mighty to save. And just as God promises to save in a future day that remnant of Israel, He can and He will save sinners this present day. And so be not like the Jews of Jesus' day and hour passage who had the savior before them but chose not to receive him but instead rejected and despised that man of sorrows instead received the glory of God in the person of Christ he was sent to his own and they did not receive him 
And therefore, God sent him out into the whole wide world. And he's here today. And and, and all you need to do is receive him. Stop resting on any works that you can do for your salvation. And simply just receive him today. Come as an empty beggar with empty hands. That's what saving faith is, emptiness, but fullness from Christ. And so why do some people believe and some people do not? That's often spoken of as a mystery. What's a heartache when people you love live and die without ever receiving Christ? Why do some people believe and some people do not? It's not a mystery, really, it's not a mystery, because reception and rejection all comes down in the ultimate sense to the sovereign grace of God. I want you to listen to Luke chapter 2, verse 34, which is speaking about Jesus, says this, behold, this child, Jesus, listen to this, is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and as a sign to be opposed. Have you thought about Jesus' life like that before? Luke 2.34. Jesus is appointed for the fall and the rise of many. God sent His Son to the people of Israel first. Jesus would preach salvation and the kingdom of God to them. They would refuse Him. And those who refuse Him fall. And those who receive Him rise. And the reason we praise God... And the reason God wants us to understand His favorite doctrine, which is His sovereignty, is because when we grasp the absolute sovereignty of God, we realize that we were the ones who rose solely by grace, and by grace alone, and His love alone. And so as you hear about Israel's rejection, leading the gospel message to go out into the world, Praise the God of all glory and grace for saving you and sending His Son who was opposed so that you could rise. Once dead, once blind, now risen to newness of life. By the one who came to save and grant new life through His death upon the cross and His glorious resurrection. Do not be like those in verse 41 to 43, which we'll read right now, because that is, if you're taking notes, this is kind of like a, not even a second point, but it just is the sad root of unbelief. That's what we'll call it. Look at verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. Verse 42, nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear they would be put out of the synagogue. And here's the reason of it all. Here's the reason for their, their it's a false faith. They're, un, they're believing unbelievers, which we've seen all through John. This is the same again. They haven't believed under salvation. 
Because they, look at this, the reason for it all, verse 43, they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 44, How can you believe when you receive the glory from another and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? They don't believe. They can't believe. They are full of love for this world and the love of this world has hampered them. The power of the world over the hearts of people is profound. Let's close by saying this. You see... Had the Jews received their Messiah, it's hard to fathom, isn't it, that the message would have gone out to all the nations. This would have been done. But through the pain of unbelief comes the gladness of belief to us. The rejection of the Jews meant the gospel to the world. In sadness, there is often found in God's sovereign plan, gladness. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and say thank you for this time. Lord, we don't take lightly the, the privilege it is to be here. Lord, we thank you for your word and the way in which by your spirit you work your son in us. We worship a triune God and we praise the triune God. Father, help us to to ever be glad even in the midst of what can be sad. We, our hearts break for those that we know and have known that have gone on having rejected Jesus. We thank you, Lord, that you, you tell us through your word here that through the rejection of, of those people came salvation to the world and we thank you that we've laid hold of that and we thank you that we're in your plan we thank you that we're part of the love gift between the Father and the Son. And so help us, Lord. We are prone to wander. We're prone to our own sin. Father, help us, we pray. We thank you that you worked Christ in us. And we thank you that, Lord, you worked not so much loving the approval of men, but loving the approval of you in us. And so help us to always be mindful of these things. And while we have the light, help us to walk in the light so that we would be sons and daughters of light because you're worthy. You're worthy, Lord. And all God's people said.